If you've got a Bible with you this morning, open up to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. You'll see if, on your notes, if you grab some notes on your way in this morning, that we're going to be doing a message this morning from the book of Hebrews about how Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Before we get there, and as you turn to the book of Hebrews, I thought I would just share with you a few things I learned over my sabbatical. So for those of you who don't know, I've referenced already, I was out this summer. I had a five-week sabbatical after 10 years here at Placerita Bible Church, and I couldn't be more thankful uh, for the opportunity to get a little bit of time away. Uh, I bookend those five weeks pretty much with a, a youth camp I was at in Illinois back in early, er, earlier in June, and then with Camp Regen that you heard about from the students who reported uh, their time in Regen last Sunday. And so if it, the sabbatical stretched a little bit longer, if you will, because I was gone for a couple of years youth camps uh, during the summer as well. But I want to share with you three things I learned over my sabbatical, okay? Number one, I learned that life is short, you want to live it well. Now, if you're a Switchfoot fan, that's, a, that's the lyrics of one of their songs, but life is short, live it well. And what I'm referring to is over my sabbatical, I, I lost an uncle, had an 81, 82-year-old uncle who passed away, and it just brought a lot of memories of times I had with him as a child, and uh, you know, death, when it happens in your family, just makes you realize that life could be over just like that, right? It was kind of an expected thing with him, uh, but that was just something I, I thought about a little bit. Uh, my dad's not doing really well. A lot of you have been asking about my dad. He had a stroke a few years ago. He's got Parkinson's. Uh, Lisa and I were able to go see him also at the end of June. And uh, just keep praying for him. It's a rough time uh, in the sense of just caring for someone who needs a lot of care. And you can just pray for my mom. And I'm talking about life is short, live it well. A lot of, a lot of thoughts about my dad, how he's doing. And, um, and then I also have noticed uh, this summer, my kids are growing up too fast. Life is short, I gotta live it well. I mean, they are just growing up. Five years ago, we took a little break, went to the East Coast, and we were looking at some pictures from that trip. This summer, we were mostly in California, but I'm just interacting with my kids. I got a senior in high school. I've got, to, I've got a sophomore in high school and a freshman in high school. So it was just kind of like, man, just, you just blink your eyes and all of a sudden your kids are in high school. You guys, some of you will be there soon. Some of you are looking back at what those years were like for you. And it just really reminded me of life is so short. I want to make sure I'm investing well in the life of my kids and, and spending time, quality time, interacting with them and, and making sure that, uh, that I'm, I'm trying to live it out well. So that's kind of one lesson. Life is short. Live it well. Lesson number two was just simply this. If you don't make it happen, it's not going to happen. Happen. And uh, there was some painting that we've been needing to do in our house for a while. And so this summer, in the midst of my restful sabbatical, I'm like, you know, what? I got to paint the upstairs. There's some, there's some paint that we need to throw on the walls. And so I took a few days to do that. Uh, I was able to read four or five books. Uh, a lot of my reading these days are, are about a sermon prep or a class I'm teaching or something like that. But I was able to read on my own four or five books. And that was just a great, refreshing thing. You got to make that happen to find time to read. Um, getting back to family devotions, you know, this summer uh, provides a lot of vacation for us. Maybe you had a little bit of a different schedule, but it was just a reminder of if you don't make it happen, it's not going to happen. We kind of lost our way a little bit with family devotions this summer. And it, again, it's understandable. We were traveling a lot, but I was just reminded this week as we had a little bit of time to get back together in God's word that we want to make sure that we're making that a priority. And then if you don't make it happen, it's not going to happen. I, I had some quality time with my wife the love of my life right here. Ladies and gentlemen, 
We got 19 years of marriage, and I got to be reacquainted with her. We took two special trips away uh, during the sabbatical and just got to spend quality time together, talking, reading together, uh, just, just enjoying, you know, uninterrupted time together. We haven't had time like that, what, since our honeymoon, you know? Uh, so uh, it was just an incredible time to spend together, and you got to make that happen. It's just a reminder, because we know it's about to get busy. I was super busy before the break. Uh, fall is uh, coming, and we know everything's going to get busy again, but we just want to make sure, honey, that we're staying connected and that we can uh, continue to pursue one another, and if we don't make it happen, it's not going to happen. So you remind me of that uh, throughout the fall. You're like, honey, you remember what you learned. Uh, make sure you keep learning it. All right, third thing I learned, third thing I learned this summer was I love being the pastor of Plasterita Bible Church. I love it. It is an incredible privilege. It's an awesome responsibility. We've been here 10 years, and sometimes other pastor friends are asking me, had a guy ask me, is your plan to be at Placerita forever? And I say, hey, we have no plans to do anything but. You know, we love our church. We're so thankful. We visited lots of other churches while we were out this summer, and I didn't find a single church I'd want to be a part of other than this one. I mean, we visited some good churches. You know, we had some great worship, but it doesn't compare to what we get here. I was just thinking that we're sitting right here. I'm just like, I'm so thankful for Drake Harris. So thankful for our worship team. So thankful for so many of you guys who serve. I wouldn't rather worship anywhere else, and I wouldn't want to hear some other preacher. I mean, I get to hear great preaching right here. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, you know, I just wouldn't want to be, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. You know, you go to churches, you're like, oh, I like this, I like this. Oh, I, I don't necessarily like this or like this. And you try not to go, you know, with that kind of consumer mentality. You just want to be blessed. Like, God, just, just bless me today to learn more about Jesus and to love him more. But, but I, it just made me, I couldn't be, you know, more happy to be back. I, I listed here, I couldn't be more proud of our elder team and our staff, you guys heard Pat Hamlin preach, you heard Mark Madrid preach, you guys know Jim Soykin, Todd teach regularly in equipping hour. I couldn't be more proud of Josh Dojero, who's really stepped up and, and, and uh, able to also preach and shepherd uh, and do counseling and all of our elder team does all. I just couldn't be more proud of them. You know, it's kind of like you're leaving as the main shepherd, you're gone for five or six weeks, stuff happens, and they did a phenomenal job keeping up with things, and I just couldn't be more proud of them. Um, I mentioned here, other churches were fun to visit, but they're just not home. Feel like I'm back home, being here with you this morning. And then I said, the amount of love and support we feel from this church is incredible. We feel so loved, so appreciated, Thank you for loving on us. Thank you for giving us a little bit of a break. And uh, we got together with a few people here and there throughout our, our break, and it just reminded us we feel so loved and supported by this church. Thank you for making it fun. Thank you for making it refreshing. Thank you for giving me opportunity to go and do things, but just know my heart's always here. Coming back here is where I wanna be, and so we're gonna be continuing our study in the book of Acts. We'll pick that up next week, but for this morning, you already turned to Hebrews, and this is something I worked on a little bit a while back, but I kind of worked on it some more this week, even though I wasn't fully back in the office yet, and I wanted to preach this as my comeback message, right? This is my comeback message. I've been going out of the pulpit since June, and I couldn't think of a better message message to encourage all of us this morning than with the fact that Jesus is better. 
So we're going to overview the book of Hebrews. Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into that time that we have together this morning. Dear God, thank you for the opportunity to be here at Placerita, to be with the saints that you've brought to this church. We're thankful for so many even visitors and new faces I see out there this morning. But we pray that at this time of our service, as we come around your holy word, the inspired, infallible, inerrant, totally sufficient word of God, that we would be so encouraged this morning with an overview and a reminder of the truth of the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is better. Don't let us buy into the lie of the world that somehow we find joy and contentment outside of Christ. Help us this morning to look to Christ and to understand what and who Jesus is even more from the book of Hebrews this morning. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, really to understand the book of Hebrews, you have to understand to some degree Jewish history. It's almost impossible to exaggerate the importance of what happened in 70 AD there in Jerusalem. It was an event for both Jews and Christians that was critical in defining God's program with his people from 2,000 years prior to 70 AD to the somewhat 2,000 years that have transpired since 70 AD. I mean, God had been at work since the days of Abraham, calling and preserving and judging and forgiving and blessing his people Israel. And he had commanded through the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, he had commanded an elaborate system of the Old Covenant, which included sacrifices and priestly ministries and feasts and rituals, and all of that defined Israel and who they were among the nations, and it was a way that God chose to make himself known to them, while at the same time always pointing to that future fulfillment of eternal rest that can only be found in Christ. And so after 2,000 years of preparing his people, God fulfilled his promise to Abraham by providing in his seed a blessing in Christ, who alone could provide salvation to all those who place their faith in Jesus. Now, Christians claim that Messiah had come, Jesus of Nazareth. However, the greater percentage of Israel rejected this claim. This rejection resulted, as you know, in the crucifixion of Jesus and even the persecution of the early church like we've been looking at in the book of Acts. And the claims of Christians raised a huge question from the Jewish people as a whole. And their their question was, what will become of our way of life? If Jesus really is here and he is the Messiah, what happens to Judaism? because Christianity seemed to be threatening the Jewish way of understanding their life and their religion of Judaism. And the new faith seemed to be incredibly radical. For example, in Acts 6, Stephen is proving to be an irresistible witness for the truth of the Christian faith. To stop him, false witnesses were brought in, and what was their charge? If you remember from Acts chapter 6, it says this, they set up false witnesses who said, this man, Stephen, never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. 
So in that passage, you hear a little bit about their concern. You hear their concern is that Christianity is going to take over, and it's going to erase our existence, and it's going to erase the temple, and it's going to erase the practices that we've become accustomed to for the last 2,000 years. It meant the destruction of their old ways. It meant the end of the Mosaic Covenant. And they could sense it. And they could, they could understand that Stephen was speaking about this new way, but they were afraid about losing the old way. And so they understood Stephen to be speaking against Jerusalem, against the law, and the unbelieving Jews really feared that Christianity threatened the existence of the temple itself. And if the temple falls, then what will become of the customs of the Old Testament and the whole religious life of Judaism? And so the issue was so sharp that they stoned Stephen. They killed him over this idea of him preaching about Christ and, and they were concerned about him referencing that, that, the, the, that the temple would be destroyed there in Acts 6. And so not only this, but we understand Jesus had actually predicted or prophesied or stated that the temple would be destroyed. You remember back in Luke 19, uh, 43 and 44, Jesus said, the temple of Jerusalem, he said this, he said, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus predicted the end of Judaism. He predicted the end of the temple era. He predicted the end of all of that. In other words, Jesus said that the Jewish faith, as they knew it at that time, would crumble. And even though Christians were, were a meek and mild people who would prefer to win others over by love than through the sword, nevertheless, at the heart of the Christian faith was this understanding of the end of Judaism. And so the Jews were concerned about this. And for decades before and after the birth of Jesus, the atmosphere of the land of Israel was tense with the spirit of rebellion against Rome. The Jewish people chafed under this godless power and they dreamed of deliverance. And so in September of 66 AD, Florus, the Roman governor of Judea, provoked the Jews by raiding the temple treasury and taking what he thought the Jews were withholding in taxes to Rome. That's in 66. This provoked a riot, and he ruthlessly crucified some of the Jewish citizens and allowed his troops to plunder part of the city. And this enraged the people. It was Eleazar, the Jewish captain of the temple, who persuaded the priest to no longer conform to the laws of the Roman emperor. This was an ominous sign of revolt against Rome, even though Israel was a tiny vassal nation. And so in a surge of courage and maybe folly, the Jewish forces actually stormed the fortress of Antonius there at the temple, it's a fortress, a military post. The Jews stormed it and they took it and they wiped out the Roman soldiers. And at this point, the die was cast. There was no turning back. And it was Vespasian, the Roman general, who came in and he put down this revolt in 67 and he took all of Israel except for the city of Jerusalem. He then returned to Rome to become the emperor, and he left the finishing work to be done by his son, known as General Titus. 
And so after a four-month or five-month siege, Titus broke through and he burned the temple to the ground in August of 70 AD. A few Jewish groups held out for a while, but eventually they all collapsed, including the force at Masada, who, considered, who committed suicide in 73 AD rather than to be handed over as captives. So if you come to Israel with us, we're going to Masada, and you'll get to hear more about that story. So this was the end of Judaism, and it had been known for, for what the people had known for 2,000 years came to an end. The priesthood came to an end. Animal sacrifices came to an end. The worship life that centered around Jerusalem and the temple all came to an end, and it has never been restored like it was before to this very day. Judaism, as we know it in the modern world, whether here in Los Angeles or in New York, any community where there's lots of Jews, Tel Aviv, obviously Jerusalem, they have never practiced the same way of life that they did prior to 70 AD. And so what is the meaning of this cataclysmic event for Judaism? Well, it was a witness to the truth of Christianity. Jesus predicted it, and it came to pass. And now Christians did not fight against Israel or Rome in this revolt. In fact, Christians suffered in Jerusalem with Israel because of the revolt. As far as Rome is concerned, Judaism was the tree and Christianity was the branch. And if they could destroy the tree of Judaism, then they could wipe out Christianity as well. And so Jews and Christians actually suffered together in 70 AD. And the destruction of 70 AD was not just an act of anti-Semitism, rather it was an act of divine judgment of God's own people because they had rejected Christ. And this is part of what Jesus meant when he said in that passage in Luke 19, when he said that this happened because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. That is, they did not recognize the coming Messiah. It was God's testimony that the coming of Jesus was, in fact, what the book of Hebrews says that it was. It was the replacement of shadows with the reality who is Christ himself. In other words, one may say the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem was God's way of saying, wake up, wake up to Christ and wake up to the new covenant and wake up to what you have in the person of Christ. Don't go back, don't ever go back. And it is true that while some of the Jewish believers had put their faith in Christ and they had stepped out of Judaism into Christianity, it was true that they began to face persecution from their own people. So the Jews that became Christians were being persecuted by their own families in an effort to escape some of the family feuds as well as the disapproval of close friends. Some of these Jewish believers began to revert back, back to the old way of life, back towards things of the old covenant that they were accustomed to. So, in the context of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, who we don't know exactly who it was, some say Paul, some say others, you can all debate about that, but we understand nobody knows for sure who the writer is. The writer of Hebrews exhorts them to press on toward full maturity in Christ. And his appeal is based on the superiority of Christ over the entire Judaistic system. And he's going to teach us in the book that Jesus is better 
Jesus is better than the prophets, for he is the source and the substance of their proclamation. Jesus is better than angels, for they worship him. Jesus is better than Moses, for Moses was created by him. Jesus is better than the Aaronic priesthood, for his sacrifice, Jesus's, was one for all time. And Jesus is better than the law, for he mediates a better covenant. And in short, there is much more to be gained by suffering for Christ than by reverting back to your old way of life. Now, some of you this morning may have come out of Judaism. I don't know that we have a high number of Jewish population here who've come to Christ, but that may be somewhere in your background, in your family. Some of you may have come out of Roman Catholicism. I know many more of you who've come out of that particular religion. Some of you may have come out of Mormonism. You may have come out of being a Jehovah's Witness. Some of you may have even come out of something like Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam or some other false religion. All of us who are believers in Christ have come out of humanism which is worshiping yourself and, and thinking it's all about me and it's all about what I want and what I need. And sometimes when the going gets tough or when your discipline as a Christian runs dry then, and we get tired of doing what's right, we too can be tempted thinking we deserve a break to just slip back into what we've been familiar with, back into the religion of worshiping ourselves and doing what we want to do instead of worshiping God and doing what God wants us to do. And you could be tempted to go back to alcohol, to go back to marijuana, to go back to sexual um, immorality. You could be tempted to go back to materialism and to go back to becoming a workaholic or to make sports your God. You could go back to finding yourself uh, just wanting to mix and mingle with worldly friends that lead to worldly behavior. We all are tempted at sometimes to drift back. And I got news for you this morning. You got to be reminded, all of us need to be reminded that Jesus is better. He's better than your old way of life. Jesus is better than the approval of your family. Jesus is better than the acceptance of your friends. And Jesus is better than your temptation and your tendency to fall back into your old ways and into your old habits and into your old culture. Jesus is better because only he can save you by his sacrifice. Jesus is better because only he can forgive you by his blood. Jesus is better because only he can bring you to heaven where he resides forevermore. Jesus is better because he is the only one who can make meaning out of your life. Only he can give you purpose of how you, how you live and only he can satisfy your desire to be loved. The Mosaic law doesn't love you. Moses, he doesn't know you. And the old covenant, well, it can't save you. You need Christ. And he is more than enough than all you need to have in him. And in him is where you find joy and meaning and purpose. And that's what the book of Hebrew is all about. Only in Jesus can you have the abundant life. It's only in Christ. Jesus is better. And because he's better, let him make you better this morning. Surrender your life to him. Taste and see that he is good. And so as we 
look at this book of Hebrews. It's an overview, remember, but I'm gonna give you five ways, and you see it in your outline, from the book of Hebrews that'll just give you a taste of how Jesus is better. You ready? Number one, Jesus is better than the prophets. He's better than the prophets. And your first blank, if you're taking notes, says this, Jesus is better than the prophets because he is the heir of all things. He is the heir of all things. Let's start with chapter one. Let's look at the first three verses. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So this first point is Jesus is better. He's better than the prophets. Jesus is better than the prophets as a preacher of the truth because Jesus is an exact representation of God's nature and he upholds all things by the word of his power. Listen, everything that exists ultimately belongs to Jesus Christ and it will all eventually become totally under his control. The prophets, along with you and I, may be an heir of salvation and a herald of God's truth, but this passage says that Jesus is our salvation and he embodies the truth. He is the heir, not just of some truth, not just of some revelation, not just of some knowledge, but notice how it says at the end of verse two, what does it say? He is the heir of all things of all things. He's an all-inclusive, powerful God who has all things under his control. He inherits all things. That's better than just being a prophet who's only an heir of the message. Let's look at B in your outline. Jesus is better than the prophets because he is the agent of creation. Again, the end of verse two, whom he created the world. So we understand that Jesus is the agent of creation. It was through Jesus that God created the world. Jesus was there at the beginning. The Gospel of John tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with him in the beginning, and through him all things were, were made. And so we understand that Jesus is beyond just telling us what happened. It was the essence of his power as the agent of creation who created God created, Christ created, the Holy Spirit created. You can't say that you can't separate that triune work of creation. And so God would never have created the world without Jesus. God determined to create the world through Jesus. And so how does that make him better than a prophet? Well, again, he was there at the beginning. He knows, he understands, he created, he is all powerful. Jesus isn't some scientist looking back, trying to figure out the origins of the universe. Jesus created the world and all that's in it by the word of his power. So Jesus is better than the prophets because he's the heir of all things. He is the agent of creation. And then next we see in your outline, Jesus is better than the prophets because he is the radiance of God's glory. He's the radiance, verse 3 says, of the glory of God. Now, I love 
God's creation. We talked about Jesus created all things, and this summer we got to travel to a lot of places and appreciate the beauty of the great state of California that we live in. While it may be pretty blue politically, it's pretty awesome geographically to travel throughout our state and see the mountains and the oceans and the canyons and all that exists out there. It's just unbelievable. I love God's creation. I love those mountains and those valleys and the sunset and the ocean. And I love, I love the God who created the Grand Canyon. I mean, I, I love God and how God created all of those things. These things all definitely demonstrate the glory of God. But creation in itself, please note, creation does not radiate. Creation reflects. Creation reflects the glory of God. But Christ is the radiance of God meaning there's power within and there's ability within to shine forth like we see on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's not just reflecting the glory like creation does, like you or I would, but he's the radiance of the glory of God. He radiates God's glory because he is God. He is the exact representation of God because he is God. And do you know what the divine looks like? Well, look at Jesus because he is Emmanuel, God with us. He's the exact imprint of God's nature because Jesus is divine. Jesus is God and Jesus and God are of the same essence and of the same being and they possess the same attributes. As John 10, 10, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Colossians 2, 9, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then we see at the end of verse three, your next blank there says, Jesus is better than the prophets because he is the glue of all things. He is the glue of all things. I love verse three where it talks about how he upholds the universe by the word of his power. To uphold the universe means to cause it to continue in a state or in a condition like inertia, like Jesus is what keeps all things from losing their momentum and falling apart. You think that the world's economy rests on the stock market or the euro or the dollar? You're wrong. It rests on Jesus. You think that our solar system is held together by gravity? You're wrong. It rests on Jesus. You think that your body continues as it does based on genetic instructions carried by your DNA? You are wrong. Your body, your very life, whatever is in this universe is upheld by Jesus. He's the glue that holds it all together. Next we see that Jesus is better than the prophets because he is the purifier of sins. He's the purifier of sins. Again, the end of verse three, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Listen, the prophets could only preach to you about the atoning sacrifice that would cleanse you of your sins. Jesus was that sacrifice, right? Jesus paid the sacrifice in himself, which purified you of your sins. The, the prophets taught us about the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Lamb of God. The prophets preached to us with their words. Jesus purified with his body that which was broken on our behalf. He, 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 he purifies us with his work, with who he is and his person. 
And so his body was broken on our behalf. And and by the way, now that Jesus has done his work, he is sitting at the right hand of the Father and interceding for us. That's what he's doing at this very moment, sitting at the right hand, interceding for us. You know, when we talk about Jesus being better than the prophets, it can't help but think about Matthew 16. Why don't you turn there quickly? We'll look at this one cross-reference. But you remember... What happened in Matthew 16, verse 13, it was Jesus who got away with his disciples to the district of Caesarea Philippi, another area we'll go to when we go to Israel. You'll go to this very place, this very setting where Jesus got away on a retreat with his disciples to have an important interaction with them in Caesarea, not on the Mediterranean, but up north of of Galilee in the mountains. And he asked his disciples, the end of verse 13, what did he ask them? He said, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or there it is, one of the prophets. That's what people are comparing you to, Jesus. They think you're like the Baptist, or maybe like Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. And they said, and he said to them, verse 15, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So this is a revelation, as you know, that Jesus said, blessed are you, Peter, that God revealed this to you because I'm not just another prophet. I'm not just another man. I am the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. Another reminder that Jesus is better than the prophets and he's better than your favorite preacher and he's better than your favorite Puritan and he's better than your favorite reformer and he's better than your favorite Christian worship artist and he's better than any hero of the faith that you've ever had. Jesus and he alone is worthy of our worship. He's better, better than any prophet, better than any person you could ever imagine. That's what the book of Hebrews is saying. So he's saying to these believing Jews, why go back to any other system if it's outside of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that moves us forward to the second thing that Hebrews teaches us is Jesus is better than the angels. You say, okay, well, the prophets, I get it. They're humans. Jesus is divine. You made that clear. That's clear in Hebrews 1. But what about the angels, man? The angels are pretty cool, right? Well, your next blank says, Jesus is better than the angels because of his deity, because of his deity. Look at verse four, where he gets into this argument and saying, the writer of Hebrews says, having become much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Makes it pretty clear, right? In verse four, better than the prophets. And now we see he's better than angels. Jesus is better than angels as an agent of revelation because he has inherited, verse four says, a more excellent name and he reigns on the throne which lasts forever. Jesus is not just better, he's much better than the angels. You know, in our culture, sometimes we're overly focused on, 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 uh, on angels as popularized by the popular uh, TV show, at least when I was a kid, called Highway to Heaven. Come on, who's out there? Are you seeing Highway to Heaven, the show? I'm seeing everybody 40 and up, all right? And then it became more contemporized by Touch with an Angel. Who saw Touch with an Angel? Oh, there's more hands going up now. I saw the same hands going up both times. All right, so, you know, like Hollywood, I'm sure there's more angel stuff out there today. I just don't watch TV anymore. But, uh, you know, the, the idea is that people are, like, really into that kind of thing. And I'm just reminding us that Jesus is far better. I'm not saying angels aren't real. 
I'm not saying angels don't have an awesome place in the kingdom of God as we're looking at here. We're just making it really clear. Jesus is better. Ooh, ooh, I got touched by an angel. I got touched by Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's just put it back into perspective. And so we read here in verses five and six, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So he's asking, did God ever say that about an angel? Answer, no. He only says that about Christ, verse six. And again, when he brings the firstborn, which doesn't mean chronological, but above all things, into the world, he said, and that's just a reference to the incarnation. Jesus already existed before the world. But he does say in this moment, let all God's angels worship him. So be reminded again, an angel is a created being. Jesus is eternal. An angel is a messenger. Jesus is the message. An angel is to worship Christ. Christ is to receive worship, not only from us, but from the angels. An angel is a servant of God. Jesus is the son of God. Let's read on, verses seven and following of the angels. He says he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Again, he's saying in verses 7 through 9, angels are servants. Jesus is sovereign. Angels are ministers. Jesus is the king forever and ever. God anointed Christ, remember, as prophet, priest, and king. And this ought to bring us much gladness today. This ought to make us be in awe of Jesus today. This ought to make us want to kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker, and the righteous lamb of God who rules his kingdom with the scepter of uprightness. Not only is Jesus better than angels because of his deity, but look at your next blank. Jesus is better than angels because of his humanity, because of his humanity. You understand angels, they're not divine and they're not human. And Jesus was both. He was divine and human, obviously referring to the hypostatic union, fully God and fully man. Look at verses uh, six, uh, chapter two. Let's skip on to chapter two. Let me read six through eight. Um, it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At the present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So verses two, uh, chapter two, verses six through eight are simply saying, in a sense, for a little while, during the incarnation and through the crucifixion, God made Jesus a little lower than the angels for a moment in his humanity, and yet, he never lost his deity. And yet we understand that all things are still subject to him. Look at verse nine. But we see him who for a little while, while he was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, he's still what? Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So 
that he could identify, he became a little lower than the angels, we're talking about the incarnation specifically, so that he could identify with you and with me and take our sins upon himself. You understand, we will never uh, relax our view of the deity of Christ, and you can never relax your view of the humanity of Christ. If you lose either one of those doctrines, then you've lost the person of Christ who's fully God and fully man. So it was important for him for a while to become a little lower than an angel so that he could take upon your sins and my sins and he could taste death for everyone who would ever repent and believe. And this is so that Jesus could be your substitute, that he could be your sacrifice, that he could be your savior. And then look down to verses 17 through 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Oh, Jesus is tempted. Oh, he went through what I'm going through and yet he was still perfect. Yet he knows what I'm going through so he can help me in my temptation because he also faced temptation. I love the doctrine of the humanity of Christ. These verses are stating that Jesus came to earth and became a man so that he could be our perfect sacrifice. He is our merciful and faithful high priest and he, uh, he, he alone can make propitiation for our sin. Only Jesus can be our substitute. No hero out there can die for your sin. Only Jesus can be your sin remover, and only Jesus can be our deliverer. And in Luke 4, Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, and we see in Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because he, he understands. He was one of us. So he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, so we don't have one who's unable to sympathize, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet was, what? Was without sin. He never sinned. He never even thought a sinful thought. He never sinned in any way. And so the author of Hebrews is just arguing that Jesus is better than an angel because of his deity, and he's better than an angel because of his humanity. Again, you, you like angels? Well, so do I. But guess what? As a class, they are not sinless. And they could never die for your sin. And I mean, I love to read about angels. It's interesting to read about Michael, the archangel who defeated the prince of Persia back in Daniel 10. Just blows your mind. It's so cool to read about Gabriel and Luke chapter one about how he represents the announcement of Christ's birth to Mary and then to Joseph. But just keep in mind, these angels are not divine, and these angels cannot take away your sin. And I think that we have to be careful today of potential mystical experiences where someone claims to have been touched by an angel. You know, we hear that because people say, well, God's too much, but we come down to the angel, we get more comfortable. I think I saw an angel. I think an angel showed up. I'm just saying we have to be careful. Could it happen? Absolutely it could happen. You could be touched by an angel. There could be an angel at any moment, but it's not a normal, regular experience of our Christian life. In fact, it's interesting, you think about angels as mentioned here in chapter two. Look at the end of Hebrews. Look at, angel, look at uh, chapter 13, just real quick. Chapter 13, verse two. You wanna know what else this book says about angels? It says this, Hebrews 13, two. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained 
angels unawares. Familiar with that verse? We hear it a lot. Hey, don't, don't, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. What if it's an angel? I just think it's interesting that this verse is not about angels serving us. This verse is about us serving angels. That's what the verse is talking about. Provide hospitality. It may be that you need to be a blessing to someone. Who knows if it's an angel? Now, again, I don't mean for a second to take away what the Bible says in Psalm 91. You can turn there if you want, but you know this one. Psalm 91, 11 and 12, which says, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And of course, we know that that's used in Christ's temptation, but I do believe angels are fully capable to watch over and protect Anyone that God wants them to watch over and protect. It's absolutely incredible. It's unbelievable. It's true that angels can do that. Angels can and do intervene in amazing ways, but I'm just saying let's keep it in balance. And for the context of Hebrews 1, he's just making sure, look, don't compare an angel for a second to the Lord Jesus. Not even for a second. They might be mighty, and God may send them to protect you, but don't for a second compare them to Jesus. So again, back to our argument that the author's making in Hebrews, Jesus is better. He's better than prophets. He's better than angels. Number three, Jesus is better than Moses. Your next blank says Jesus is better than Moses because he's a better builder of the house. Look at chapter three, verses one through four. It says, therefore, holy brothers, you who are you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God." And this is simply saying Jesus is better than Moses as a mediator because he gave us not only his word to sanctify us, but his very life to save us that we may enter into his eternal rest. It was Abraham who gave birth to the nation of Israel, and we know him as Father Abraham, but it was Mo Moses who organized the house. And the point the author of Hebrews is trying to make is that Moses is a part of the house and he brought some organization to the house under the old covenant, but Jesus is the builder of the house. He's the one who builds the house. In fact, in verses five through six, your next blank, Jesus is better than Moses because he is a son, not a servant. He's a son, not a servant. Look at verses five and six. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Jesus, or but Christ, is faithful over God's house as a son. See the comparison? Moses is a servant, praise God for faithful servants, but Jesus is the son. And the problem is the Jews kept saying, yo, what about Abraham? But what about Moses? And that's why in the new covenant that Walter of Hebrews is like, don't drift back towards Abraham and Moses as somehow they have authority over Christ as if somehow you learn more from them than you would learn from Jesus. You better move forward with God's revelation of the person of Christ in real time. Everything else was a shadow. Remember, this is God's son. Everything pointed to him. And so we see that Jesus is better. Moses is a servant. Jesus is a son. Moses was a faithful prophet serving in the house while Jesus is the faithful son over the house. And we, we are not in Moses. We are in Christ, right? So just one more thing. Just think about it. Moses delivered the children of Israel from Egypt 
but he never delivered them from the law. In fact, Moses is the giver of the law at Mount Sinai. It's Jesus who delivered us from the law, having been perfect in keeping the law so that he may live by, so that we may live by his imputed righteousness. So Moses brought the law. He was a mediator, did some great stuff. We're so thankful for Moses. He's not Christ. He brought the law. Jesus brings grace. Moses brings the old covenant. Jesus ushers in the new covenant. That's where we're heading here in the book of Hebrews. In fact, your next blank says Jesus is better than Moses because he provides a better rest and an abiding one. Chapter four, verses one through three. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. So this is a lot of conversation about the rest of the Old Testament, like resting in the promised land and resting in the New Testament, resting in Christ. Please remember, not all of ethnic Israel entered the promised land. Do you remember the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness that all those who were 20 and over died, except for Caleb and Joshua, who were able to then bring the Israelites into the promised land. They never entered the rest, not even physically. But for us, all of us who are in Christ, all of us who are true believers, we can and will enter that eternal rest. All who are in Christ enter in. So it's comparing and contrasting. Don't think about Moses as being something spectacular. Only half the people who came out of Egypt made it into the promised land. Moses didn't even make it. He died on the top of Mount Nebo, looking in, desiring to come in, but he couldn't because of his own sin. And so it's just saying, how much more superior is Christ? For us who are in Christ, we can enter in. In fact, look at verses 8. Chapter four, verses eight and following. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Just kind of a little hint here that it was never about just a physical promise. It was about a spiritual promise. The promised land's a picture of heaven. And you get that from allegories like, you know, the Pilgrim's Progress from John Bunyan, where we just keep pushing forward. We haven't, we're not, it's not done. We're looking forward. That's what Hebrews is pushing us to. Another day later on, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. It says, verse 10, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. He's saying, we gotta learn from what happened to the Jews who died in the wilderness. Moses never led the children of Israel into eternal rest. I just mentioned he never even led them into the promised land. Remember, Moses wasn't able to do that. But if you're here today and you want to enter into that rest, Jesus says, I've got that rest that you need. There's still opportunity for you to hear the word of God, to unite it with faith and to enter into the rest of God. Uh, the, the rest of this verse is, is talking about, I believe, the rest of salvation. That's the point. He's saying, hey, look, we're not just talking about entering to the promised land. We're talking about entering into salvation. The, 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 it's the rest 
of knowing that God has reached down from heaven and plucked your soul from darkness and shined his light into your heart. We're talking about the rest here that you enter by faith, that you, the kind of rest that you never, ever, ever have to worry about your eternal security again. It's the rest that means that you can have perfect peace and perfect tranquility and perfect calmness even in the storms of life. It's the rest that means that it's not about your effort to become a Christian, but it's about God's effectual call to choose you, to transform you, to cleanse you, and to protect you from all evil. It's the rest that Jesus talks about in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, when he says, come unto me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart, and you will find that's the rest that we're talking about. It's eternal rest. It's salvation. So Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than the law. He's better than your efforts to keep the law perfectly. And then number four, I know we got to wrap it up here, but number four, Jesus is better than Aaron. Aaron here is a representation of the priesthood. And you have to study this on your own because our, our time is coming to an end. But it says Jesus is better than Aaron in his priestly position. Bottom line, the priest of the Old Testament had to sacrifice day after day, day after day, year after year. We understand that Jesus is better than Aaron as the priest who both sympathizes with our weaknesses and perfects our worship as he has offered his own life as a sacrifice once and for all. Aaron may have passed through the veil in the temple or tabernacle on earth, but Jesus has passed through the heavens. Aaron sacrificed a red heifer. Jesus is the sacrifice with his red blood flowing down for you and for me. Aaron was a sinner. Part of his sacrifice had to first cover his own sin, and then part of that sacrifice was to be a substitute for your sin, foreshadowing the real substitute who was Christ. But Jesus never sinned. He, as a substitute, only died for sinners. He didn't have to cover any of his own sin. Aaron identifies a little too well with our sin. Jesus understands our weakness and yet is without sin. So let us draw near to Christ. B, your next blank says, Jesus is better than Aaron in his priestly qualifications. He's better than Aaron. And you could read this on your own in chapter five, but basically Aaron has to offer sacrifices for himself. Jesus only offers sacrifices for others. We could talk about the order of Melchizedek. And this is a whole different order of the priesthood pointing to the divine sacrifice and priesthood of Christ. And so all the comparisons there, it's like, hey, I appreciate what those priests did. It's just a shadow pointing to the real thing. Number five, Jesus is better than the old covenant. In case we haven't seen this already, this is what he's building through his whole argument. A, Jesus is better than the old covenant because he brings us a new covenant. Let's look at chapter eight, verses six and seven. Chapter eight, verses six and seven. But as it is, this Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So how much more clear could it be? The first covenant served its purpose. It was the order that was brought to the house to bring an administration of the people of God to learn lessons about the true divinity of Yahweh. 
but it was always pointing to Christ that God would send as his own son. And so, of course, the new covenant's better because it was ratified by the blood of Christ. It's not about the blood of bulls or goats anymore. We needed a new covenant because the old covenant was a temporary program until Christ arrived. As you see in verse 10 of chapter 8, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The old covenant is written on stone. The new covenant is written on your heart, and it's revealed to us through God's word, through the person of Christ for every true believer. And this is the new covenant of the blood of Christ accomplishing our salvation and aiding us in our sanctification. Look at verse 13, the very end of chapter eight. So what happened to the old covenant? Well, it says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one, what? Obsolete. The writer of Hebrews is like, we're done with that period of time. We don't need it. We don't need Abraham, we don't need Moses, we don't need the temple, we don't need temple sacrifices, we don't need dietary restriction, we don't need ceremonial law, we don't need nothing. You don't even need a priestly garment. You don't need anything. You have the Lord Jesus Christ. He ushers in a new covenant. The old is obsolete. He's saying to the Jewish believers, forget Judaism. Now again, if some people had a preference to practice some Jewish things, like if you're part of Jews for Jesus or something, you're probably upset at me right now. Look, there's a lot of cool stuff that we can do and around Passover and all this, but I'm saying you don't need it. It ain't essential, all right? It's just pointing to Christ. If you never do any of that stuff, you'll be just fine. We can appreciate it and learn from it and what it's really pointing to, but it's not, he's saying don't go back and hold on to it as a surety. Christ is our surety. B, Jesus is better than the old covenant because he offers a better tabernacle. He offers a better tabernacle. Look at chapter 9, verse 11. But when Jesus appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Again, Jesus offers not a physical temple or tabernacle. He offers a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, it's not of this creation. See, Jesus is better than the old covenant because he offers a better sacrifice. He offers a better sacrifice. Verses 12 through 14, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This is the sacrifice that atones, not the blood of bulls or goats, but the blood of Jesus Christ. And it does not have to be repeated. As we talked about, the rest of chapter 10 talks about how it's repeated day after day. So you say, hey, Adam, what can we learn from this? I'm glad you gave us a great overview of the book of Hebrews. What can we learn? Look at your take-home section. Because Jesus is better, let us learn what we can from the examples of the faith. There's a lot we can learn from the examples of the faith. In fact, that's where he goes next in chapter 11. It's the hall of faith where God, he exalts the character and the narrative of so many of these prophets. He just doesn't want you to get lost in it as if it somehow compares to Jesus, but there's good examples. We can learn from the examples of Abraham and the examples of Moses. Second, under the take home, because Jesus is better, let us look to him as the founder and perfecter of our faith. I think this is just a little bit of a reminder, remember from Jesus being the agent of creation, he founded our faith. 
It's not necessarily built up on and propped up on Judaism. Judaism was what it was until it became Christianity. And he's just saying the line that goes straight through was always Jesus. That thread and theme of redemption was always Jesus. He is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And you know that's what Hebrews 12, one through three says. So we ought to lay aside every distraction. We ought to run with endurance. We ought to fix our eyes on Jesus. And your next blank, because Jesus is better, let us live a godly life through the blood of the eternal covenant which preserves our faith. And that's what chapter 12 and chapter 13 are about. It's about appreciating the discipline of God, pursuing peace with all men, showing gratitude, loving the brethren, going out to Jesus, identifying with him who died outside the gate. Hebrews 13, 17, obeying your leaders. Hebrews 13, 18, praying for one another. Those are all applications in chapters 12 and 13 of the fact that Jesus is better. And so in conclusion, have you ever been tempted to leave the faith? Have you ever been tempted to go back to your former way of life? Have you ever been tempted to sin and to trust your feelings and your desires in a moment of compromise or weakness? I have. We've all been tempted to go back to what we were familiar with. Well, let the book of Hebrews speak to you this morning that Jesus is better. He's better than the praises of people. He's better than any false faith. He's better than any coveted sin. He's better than any earthly pleasure. He's better than any worldly experience. He's better than anything money can buy. He's better than any team winning the championship. He's better than an enchanting romance. He's better than popularity. He's better than any power. He's better than any medicine, any diet, or any form of self-improvement. Why go to any of those things and spend your time and effort on that? We are impoverished without Jesus. We are destitute without Jesus. We are a disaster without Jesus being the very center of your life. Jesus is better. He's better than the prophets. He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. And he's better than the old covenant. Let him make you better. And he makes you better by saving your soul. If you're here this morning and you've been way too familiar with all the structure of Christianity, it all comes crashing down this morning if you look at what the author of Hebrews is pointing us to, and that's to you have to look to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Don't be so enamored with anything else. Let Jesus capture your full attention. And come to him this morning. And as we close here in a moment, if you don't know Christ, we're inviting you to come into a relationship with him this morning. There'll be a few people standing over by this door and we would love to give you some counsel. And we would love to hear a little bit about your troubled soul and what you might be going through and say, you know what, Jesus can help. And I'm not just saying like, you know, we just add him on as a little band-aid. I'm saying he transforms you. He can save you. He can radically change your greatest uh, concerns into an incredible testimony of his work in your life. So don't for a second run away from the person and work of Jesus. Come to him this morning. Maybe you're here today and you're just like, you know what? I just need Jesus. I need to come back to Christ and see him as superior. God, please forgive me for being too distracted with these worldly things. I just want Jesus. He's better than anything else. 
Let's pray together. Father, thank you this morning for reminding us of the fact that Jesus is your son. He is the agent of creation. He's the savior of the world. He's better than anything that anyone could ever think of or imagine. He's your own son. And I just pray, God, that you would help us as a church as we love Bible study and we love historical theology and we love studying the Old Testament. It's a treasure. It really is. Lord, just help us to please remember that it all points to Christ. It all points to the redemption that we have through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll be the first to confess, we just get too distracted with our, with our finances, with our, uh, with our um, vacations, with our holidays, with our work, with even school, with sports, with, with shopping, with social media. We, we, just get, we just get completely distracted. And the, the author of Hebrews, as we've seen, God, is just calling us back into a love relationship with the supremacy and the superiority, the beauty of the reigning king, the Lord Jesus. And I pray that we would come to Christ this morning and love Christ and adore Christ and be in awe of Christ and worship Christ with all that we are. And so I pray that you would continue to keep this message, this message of your word, the message of the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is better as an anthem, as a commitment, as a banner that we would wave high every moment of every day Thank you for sending us your son, Jesus Christ, who's better than anything this world has to offer. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.